0: Joining us now, Adina Friedman. She's a NASDAQ president and chief executive officer. Adina, I just saw you on CNBC do the Earnings Act. I want to move on from that. This primal scream I hear right now across global Wall Street is that everything is free. As you well know, in retail, things have run amok. We've got free trades, free trades, and all of this trading. There's becoming a new distrust almost of how business is done for retail in America. Are you concerned that retail's getting a fair deal in this new high speed online economy?
1: Well, I definitely think that the environment for retail investing has really been um, been pretty pretty great over the last ten years. Frankly, I think that you know the fees that retailers have had to pay um, to be able to enter the markets, the democratization of the markets by allowing them to have direct access to the markets over the last ten to twenty years has really been you know a key trend that has driven I would yep. say the U.S. markets. But so I, I do think that's a longer-term trend. The fact that that the commissions have gone to free certainly has driven more demand within the retail environment um, and retail investors coming into the market. But are, is it
0: a free lunch? I mean, this is the key thing. And I go back, of course, to our relationship, Adina, with Arthur Levitt and his uh, respect for the individual investor 30 years ago. Is it a free lunch? I mean, a Schwab says it's free. TD Ameritrade says it's free. You can trade Nasdaq shares and it's free. Is it a free lunch?
1: Well, first of all, it it really is free for retail. Um, And I was I was at NASDAQ with Arthur Levitz um, during his tenure. And I do think that he really was on a mission to make it so we democratize access to the capital markets. And I think he he went a long way in that regard. The online brokers have done an enormous amount to create services that really do benefit retail. And I do think that at the end of the day, they are getting a good experience. The spreads in our markets are extremely narrow, which means they are getting good executions. And they are now not having to pay commissions against uh, and and to those retail brokers to gain access to the market. So for them, it really is free. Okay, Adina,
2: the spreads might be narrow. Are there sufficient protections against losses in companies, say, in China that are filing for IPOs here and trading without necessarily the same types of
1: oversight that U.S. companies face? Yeah, and that's actually something that we have been in active dialogue with the SEC about. We um, we encourage them to have a roundtable recently with the experts, whether the underwriters, the accounting firms, the lawyers, the SEC itself, and, and NASDAQ, we, and all the exchanges. We play a big role together in trying to make sure that we create the right... A disclosure regime for companies coming to the U.S. and including companies from China. There are some differences in terms of the disclosure obligations that um, that companies have coming from China, as well as um, some reduced oversight that's on the accounting firms that that um, support these companies. So. That's an area that we are focused on and trying to create positive change. I think the SEC is also focused on it, um, but those that requires some uh, d- diplomacy between the United States and China, and it's something we've really been encouraging them to really um, to, to focus on.
3: Adina, you've been incredibly proactive about all of this. Can you just walk us through what you have actually done specifically?
1: Yeah, so we, we, have, we have definitely had some concern that we want to make sure that we can play our role in addressing. So we've increased the, our, our oversight of the accounting firms that are, are being used by the, by the Chinese companies. We, we normally really uh, have, rely on the SEC for that. But at the same time, we do want to make sure that we have some oversight over the quality of the accounting firms that are being used. The second thing is we are requiring at least one member of the management team or a consultant to the management team to have U.S. public company experience. And the third thing is we have actually increased the public float requirement for companies that are listing from China. And all of those three things are things that we can achieve, but it's really a broader ecosystem issue that we're trying to make sure that um, that the government is working with the Chinese government to address.
0: I mean, I mean, this, the backdrop for this, folks, is really important here. It's the Alibaba and the uproar over Grand Cayman Islands island positioning, you know, up to years ago, etc. But then, Adina, you've got the recent wirecard train wreck in Germany as well. This is really important Do you and your other markets. Do you feel the SEC is abrogating its duty?
1: Well, I think that the SEC is, uh, has an enormous amount of responsibility and they take it extremely seriously in terms of the disclosure obligations that they place on companies that choose to list in the United States. Um, I do think that they do an excellent job, frankly, of managing those disclosure obligations and reviewing the companies, being very proactive and um, writing back questions and comments to companies with their filings. And, and it is it is a well, huge part of their role.
0: This is, but, but, Adina, Ant is doing Shanghai and Hong Kong, I think. I can't remember which markets. They're not doing you. They're not doing NYSE, et cetera. OK, great. Is that a loss for you? Do you care that you didn't get the Ant IPO?
1: I think that we should look at the U.S. markets as really the place where any company from around the world would want to come and go public. So I think that we would like to see, you know, every company from around the world choose to listen to the United States. Okay, but
0: then what are you going to do about it? Besides, you know, the president's out there with the politics of the moment, and maybe President Biden, President Trump next term will be the same way. I don't mean to disparage them. But what can you do proactively to maintain America as a place to do capitalism?
1: Yeah, well, first of all, our, we are the engine of capitalism here in the United States, and we're really proud of that role. We want to make sure we create a frictionless trading environment, but we also want to make sure we have a really high-quality disclosure uh, regime that we operate under here in the United States. And that's really a combination of the role of the SEC, the role of the exchanges, and the role of the underwriters and accounting firms as they play, play their part as gatekeepers as well. And I think that that's something that we have to make sure we create that balance, making sure that we have the right kind of quality coming into the United States, but also making the capital markets and maintaining them as open capital markets for the world. Um, it is a fine balance to strike right now.
2: Adina, have you rejected certain IPOs based
1: on the disclosures, even if the SEC maybe hasn't weighed in? Um, We definitely have. We go through a second level review and we do um, absolutely reject companies that we don't think meet our standards, even if they've gone through the disclosure process with the SEC.
3: Adina, fantastic to catch up with you today. Thank you very much for joining us. Adina Friedman there, (coughs) Nasdaq president and CEO.
0: Right now on the gyrations of the commodity space and it is a deceptive space. The Bloomberg Commodity Index is actually really good math. And it's about 18% gold. And with gold to the moon, clearly that index has done better. But what about the rest of the space? Francisco Blanche is head of global commodities and derivatives and owns gold up to his eyeballs. He's like Goldfinger (laughs) in the early Bond movie. And he joins us this morning as well. Francisco Blanche, let's get gold out of the way here. Is it dominating all of commodity analysis right now? Are the indexes no good just because of gold?
4: Uh, Tom, uh, you, you make me laugh. Uh, we, look, I mean, it, it, it's um, it, it, we are having all precious metals uh, ripping here, but also, uh, frankly, we've had a pretty good run on industrial metals, and then then the one commodity that hasn't moved all that much has been oil, which has been pretty stable around the um, forty forty five level for for a few uh, for a few weeks now. But, uh, but yes there's a lot of focus on precious metals but also a lot of focus on what china is going to do next in terms of infrastructure and the uh, the big pull from uh, from china from a resources perspective so, so i think I think you can uh, you know there's a reflation story going on um, and uh, and obviously gold is is the biggest beneficiary because of, of, of a lot of macro factors that have uh, that have been piling up to support it right so so I don't think it's the only story in commodities i also think that industrial metals are, are picking up. And, and oil is kind of on, on, on waiting on the sidelines until until we get a, a bigger uptake in economic activity. That, that's, I think, the, the reality for oil. Um, COVID well, Francisco, is a crisis.
2: Hold on a second there, sure. because there's a sweet spot between industrial metals and precious metals, and that is silver, which is on a tear. How much do you see that escalating at this point? Can you give us some calls both on silver and gold in the upcoming months?
4: Um, so we, we've, we've maintained a $25 target on silver. Um, I mean, obviously, the uh, uh, one of the things that, that uh, silver is, is good for is, is solar panels. And what we are saying is that a large portion of all this money going into infrastructure is going into what, what, what we, some people label the energy transition. And that energy transition means we're going to be using a lot more silver for a lot of this, this uses. The same thing applies to copper, by the way. Uh, so think about, think about the energy transition metals. What we call the myths, the the metals in future energy technologies: copper, um, uh, uh, lithium, yeah. uh, cobalt, uh, silver itself. So silver is, is getting is getting very hot, partly because of that. It's a combination, and, and it's also also some people put it as, as a poor man's gold. I it's, it's something a little easier to buy. But I mean, I, I don't quite buy that argument. But I think I think there's certainly. That, that accelerating trend of, on silver. I also think both platinum and palladium, particularly platinum, has, has a long way to go here as well. So, so, so Francisco, we, are, we, are
2: we should say that Tom has been outfitting his entire apartment and solar panels, so he's been contributing <clears throat> to the rise in silver. There's a question of whether the industrial metals can continue to rally in tandem with weakening oil, the idea that you could have demand for building but not necessarily a commensurate demand for crude. Could you see that happening?
4: Uh, it, it's it's happening to some extent right because as, as we said a lot of the infrastructure packages that are coming through uh and like i said particularly china i think are, are 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 going to to boost that kind of spending but COVID is primarily a mobility crisis um the more we move the more COVID spreads and and that's uh i think a, a fact that uh hopefully has been has been shown in different ways now so, so my sense is that until we have a vaccine or a cure or a combination of both, we're going to have to keep limiting our mobility. And that's not great for oil. Um, we, we still think that demand will be 98 million barrels a day for next year on average. But again, uh, it should have been 103. So we're going to be maybe five or six million barrels a day away from the level of demand that we should have seen <clears throat> next year. All things being
0: equal. For instance, so what is yep. the instability to EM here to commodity EM? How close are we to where your world folds over into the fiscal world of these EM nations?
4: Um, so, I mean, I think if you look at uh, if you look at Russia, Russia's reasonable economic shape. Um, their budget break-even is in the mid forties for uh, oil. So, with crude oil having rallied back into the forty-three, forty-five dollar range, uh, they are they're in reasonable shape. Um, other emerging markets, not so much. Remember, uh, countries like uh, Saudi Arabia have a much higher breakeven, so so they're going to struggle more. And then other countries which are heavily reliant on things like iron ore or uh, agricultural commodities, like Brazil, are in better shape because as you know um, iron ore has been one of the one of the stellar commodities uh, in the past in the past year. So iron ore really is really ripped here, so that's kind of benefiting uh, Brazil as well. So so I think for the most part, it's oil nations, and it's those oil nations that have not adjusted their, their budgets. Uh, and, and Saudi Arabia comes up <laughs> probably at the front, uh, but also many others in, in, in Africa and, and uh, Venezuela, obviously, and what have you.
0: No. Too short of visits, uh, visit Francisco Blanche, thank you so much, with Bank of America, of course, on commodities. Michael is does public policy for Morgan Stanley, but he does it through a wonderful prism of municipal credit. It really helps to be a credit analyst before you spout about public policy. Michael, thrilled to have you on. Let's start with the desperation. How desperate are states and locals to this aid? How bad do they need it?
5: Uh, they need it pretty badly, but not nearly as badly as they would have if the Fed um, hadn't come through with the municipal liquidity facility, the MLF. So by our estimate, state and local government, um, or, or sorry, state deficits through the end of fiscal 2021 range anywhere from $180 billion to $375 billion. Uh, and the Fed-MLF backstop is making roughly... $250 billion available for states. So in theory, before you undertake any austerity measures, you could basically punt most of that budget deficit. Uh, you could term it out about three years just with the MLF. But the austerity in itself is important, right? Because if you do have to undertake that austerity or that borrowing, you probably see credit downgrades. You see a drag on the broader macroeconomy through state and local government layoffs. Uh, so it's, pro- it's, it's obviously much better for investors if, the care, if CARES 2, what Congress is negotiating right now, put something like 250 to $500 billion in state and local aid into the bill, and actually that's where we think they're going to end up. So I think at the end of the day, a few weeks from now, you're going to see this problem, I don't want to say solved, but largely mitigated, kind of taking the state of state credit back to where it was in January February of this year.
2: So in other words, a 250 to $500 billion allocation to states' municipalities in the next round of the CARES Act will be sufficient to totally offset the damage from the pandemic to state finances. Is that what you're saying?
5: Yeah, I think that's more or less correct, right? I mean, totally, totally offset is probably too strong of a word, but uh, you largely fill in that gap. Um, now, of course, if we're wrong in our own estimate about how the rest of the pandemic plays out, if um, you know, if, if vaccines don't get us to herd immunity by uh, the first half of next year, uh, then you'd expect a continuation of revenue shortfalls, uh, furthering pressuring budgets. But if we are comfortable with the assumption, and we are at Morgan Stanley, that you're going to be able to achieve that uh, by the first half of next year, then, yes, this is – Uh, a a substantial mitigant to the stress that's opened up for state and local finances.
3: Michael, let's get to the substance of the current debate down in Washington, D.C. There seems to be a general broad agreement on sending more stimulus checks to Americans, on extending the enhanced unemployment benefits to some degree at least. Where's the big sticking point that you expect to emerge in the coming week of negotiations?
5: Yeah, I'd say there's kind of, there's a few different sticking points. One is on the absolute size but Republicans seem keen to want to keep that headline number relatively low to appease some of the deficit hawks uh, in their caucus. Uh, The marker they've laid down is we don't want to see more than a trillion dollars. I think practically speaking, there's a good chance that that number is going to have to come up a little bit to accommodate what everyone wants, right? If we filter this down to what's bipartisan, what addresses the pandemic impact directly, and what are things that can be done without impacting the budget baseline over the long term, you know, it's still a filter that allows for things like you mentioned, stimulus checks, state and local government aid, an extension of supplemental unemployment benefits, uh, and therefore a trillion dollars probably looks more like the floor of what's going to happen here. Uh, so <clears throat> they think that's that seems like a red line, but it's going to have yeah. to move a little bit. The size of the extra unemployment checks, is, is pr- it seems like a red line, but it's probably going to have to move a little bit. Um, I think ultimately there's enough agreement around those issues in principle that we're pretty confident you're going to see an agreement here over the next two to three weeks.
3: Tom, I think this is the really important aspect of this, that the concepts themselves aren't really being debated. It's about size. If they were negotiating the concepts themselves and had broad disagreements over them, I think it would be difficult to get a deal and get a deal quickly. We actually saw this in Europe, a very similar story. The Netherlands weren't debating the concept, they were debating the size. And when you see that playing out in negotiations, I think you can be confident that we can come to a deal. Someone needs to come down a bit someone needs to come up a bit we meet somewhere in the middle if it was about concepts i'd be much more nervous I,
0: i would i would agree with that john but i think there's a huge difference between europe and america and michael this goes to the labor component of our municipal finance do you just presume layoffs at the federal at the state and at the many cities level
5: well i think there is probably going to be some degree of that and it tends to sort of, at least at the state and local level, it tends to kind of lag the real economy. Um, now, I think if we get the appropriation that we think you're going to get, those layoffs become a much lighter touch. Uh, but, yeah, I, mean, I, I think you, you can't dismiss the idea that there wouldn't be any layoffs whatsoever. But this is really about mitigating that effect and the drag on the, the state mm-hmm. and local sector on the on the broader economic recovery over time. I think that's heavily influencing the debate in Washington, D.C. You have plenty of Republicans who are very reticent initially to extend any aid to state and local governments, right? You have Mitch McConnell talking about bankruptcy uh, as a solution. Yeah. Uh, but what seems to have crept in is that there are plenty of Republican states that are had big budget gaps, not just because of COVID, but because of oil prices going down. And there's an understanding that the sort of negative feedback loop on the economy um, keeps going if you don't fill in some of these budget gaps.
3: Some of the more toxic language just isn't a part of the conversation right now. Michael Zizis, great to That's catch right. up with you, Sir Morgan Stanley's head of U.S. public policy research. We're
4: delighted to be joined now by Sir Howard Davies, He's NatWest group Chairman, and actually NatWest Group, because you rebranded today, Sir Howard. So actually, also congratulations on that. Um, Maybe first, just on, on this consulate, um, you know, story in Houston. Are we assuming that things between the U.S. and China, that China and the rest of the world will actually escalate on intellectual property issues?
6: Well, it's a it's a difficult one for me to answer because uh, some cynics would, of course, say there's not much intellectual property in banking and I think the the financial sector has not been particularly affected by this issue but I do know that many companies are concerned that their intellectual property uh, has been uh, well whether stolen is the right word, but has been used by by Chinese competitors. What I find is slightly surprising is that this is something that's taking place in a consulate. I mean, most Western countries' consulates are involved in issuing visas; they're not involved in industrial espionage. Um, but it looks as if the Americans do have some reason to think that's the case. I would say, however, that these kind of tit for tat closures of offices are things which are quite easy to do and sometimes they're almost like a safety valve if you like Uh, you know so you close something they close one of yours and you know everybody's made that point but it'll be interesting to see if there's something more to it than that if it's just a reciprocal closures of consulates then it's probably a relatively minor question
4: How does COVID-19 actually change the trade war between the U.S. and China? Does it make it less likely that we'll see a real, you know, second trade war or continuation of because of the already depressed state of the world economy?
6: Well, it raises the stakes, of course, because when everything's going well, you know, governments feel that they can perhaps make make gestures or make uh, political points uh, in the trade area without too much damage. I think what the COVID situation means is that you're playing with fire here because you're operating against a rather fragile economic background anyway. And therefore, taking <clears throat> tough trade measures, um, when imposing tariffs, is going to be potentially more damaging than it would be if trade is otherwise buoyant. So I, I think that's the way in which it affected.
0: it. Sir Howard, I must turn to this historic moment for Europe that we saw over the weekend. You are qualified to speak on this with your tenure of duty, your tour of duty, rather, at Sciences Po, and of course with your work at the London School of Economics. Is Europe a better place this morning because of what occurred this weekend to consolidate a United States of Europe?
6: Yes, it is, whether a United States of Europe overstates the case, I think perhaps it does, but it's clearly a kind of Rubicon has been crossed here in that they have agreed to collectively guaranteed borrowing. And that's been something which the Germans and others have held out against for quite a long time. That, I think, is a very important moment and suggests that the arguments for solidarity, a word that doesn't translate terribly well into English, that the arguments for solidarity in Europe have won the day, at least temporarily. So I do think it's an important moment. Indeed, you could see by the fact that it took them four days to get there that they were overcoming some very serious issues. So I'm, I'm modestly optimistic about the way this has turned out. And uh, I think we could see a stronger European recovery as a result.
0: From where you sit right now and with all your radar at the NetWest group and all of your discussions within academics and the experts that are out there, How in recession is the economy right now? I'm having trouble getting a gauge of the depth or persistency of a slowdown in aggregate demand. The markets are telling me it's worse than the chit-chat. What is it, Sir Howard? Yeah, what we've seen so
6: far is that some parts of spending have recovered really quite well. Spending on staples, if you like, has been pretty flat through the period, and that's okay and spending on consumer durables has picked up really quite sharply. What we have not yet seen is a sharp pick up in what you might call social expenditure, eating out, obviously all the arts related uh, cinemas etc. That has not yet picked up. And so the question is will people be confident enough to go back to their previous practices of social expenditure? And that, I think, is going to take quite a bit of time. So my favoured view of the shape of the recovery is that we have had the beginnings of a V-shaped recovery and that that's been quite good as far as it goes. In fact, slightly better in the UK than the Bank of England thought. But that the next part of the V may flatten out a bit because then you reach some social and psychological issues about people's confidence. And that, I think, will take some time to recover. Sir Howard,
0: thanks so much. Sir Howard Davis of NatWest Group. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.